Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. Here's Mr. Billy Joel. In less than 50 minutes, the bootleg recording of Billy Joel at the Orpheum Theater in 1974 reveals the trajectory of his career up to that point and hints towards the challenges and major changes to come. It's not his most popular bootleg, but as a warts and all snapshot of this moment, it's surprisingly revelatory. The show, recorded on May 14th of that year, is Billy's first performance in Boston, Massachusetts. He is the first opener on a three-band bill with Livingston Taylor and Jesse Colin Young. But already there are hints of his future success and the changes he'd make over the next few years. Of the nine songs Billy plays here, three will get updated on 1981's Songs in the Attic, and you can already hear some of the changes taking form. All but two are from Piano Man, and one is only a few weeks old. But more than the songs themselves, this recording is a rare glimpse of Billy between his first hit song Piano Man and Street Life Serenade, an album he felt was a failure out of the gate. You'll hear the West Coast feel of his live band, an approach he'd soon consciously jettison for the tougher East Coast sound that would become his hallmark. And you'll hear him wrestle with technical issues, often humorously. He's also developing his rapport with his audience, and their response points to where his career would soon go. Join us as we dive deep into Billy Joel live at the Orpheum Theater in 1974. We love diving into these old Billy Joel bootlegs, and we decided on this one because we had mentioned it sort of in passing when we did the episode on Street Life Serenade. In particular, we spoke about this version of The Entertainer, which is the earliest documented version of it. And also, Street Life Serenade was an album that we couldn't find any sort of demos or early recordings for. So with that in mind, for this episode, we're diving all the way into Billy Joel's uh, Live at the Orpheum bootleg. This was recorded May 14th, 1974 at the Orpheum Theater in Boston, Massachusetts. The theater has a capacity 2,850 people. And for this show, which was actually Billy's first in Boston, which he mentions, but not his first in Massachusetts, which we'll get into a little later. Mm-hmm. Um, for this show, he's opening for Livingston Taylor and Jesse Colin Young. Yeah, Billy was doing a run with them. It seemed to be the uh, Midwest and Canada. There's not too much documentation on this. And again, it goes back to our conversation on Street Life Serenade, where this whole era, there's just not a lot of concrete information out there. You know, and thinking what era it was, we know that in a few months, he's going to release Street Life Serenade, which he's not going to be very happy with. Very soon after that, he's going to enlist Doug Stegmeyer into the the band and we know uh very soon after that he's gonna have the lords of 52nd street and we all know that the big impetus there was he wanted an east coast band he didn't like the west coast sound anymore he didn't feel it was translating and that's really something to keep in mind when you listen to this recording because if you listen closely it really is a west coast performance i made a couple notes along the way and i'll sort of touch on these moments that i really picked up on but the two big things was that there were a lot of laid-back grooves yeah and also the guitar work was very guitar Yes. Billy has said that it was difficult to find the right guitarists because guitarists were just guitarists and they didn't know how to stay out of the way of the piano all the time. Right. And a lot of times on this album, I heard great licks and great guitar accompaniments. And I'm like, man, that sounds great. But that sure sounds like every other band. That sure doesn't sound like Billy. And it really wasn't until he had Russell and whomever else that he could sort of direct better that he found guitarists that could complement the piano rather than making it sound like a sort of noodly West Coast jam. Especially when David Brown entered the picture in the end of 1978, Mm -hmm. you know, you had two guitar players at that time with Billy and they really filled out the sound without ever getting in the way. And it's certainly different than the guitar work that we come to know in the later years. Certainly. It became much more orchestrated in a way that was very unique. And we said in our episode about the Billy Joel covers that you don't appreciate necessarily everything the Lords did until they're not there, you know, until that crack rhythm section isn't there. You don't realize how unique and distinct some of the arrangement choices were on later albums until you really hear a live band plow through these songs. 
And I don't want to get too far into each one of them right yeah. now. I just want to point out two more quick things about this recording, and then I think we can dive in. Yeah. So the first thing is, this recording isn't nearly as clear as CW Post, which was the first bootleg we covered for the podcast. That one, of course, was a radio broadcast, so there was a little extra care put into capturing the audio outside of the room. Mm -hmm. That said... I enjoyed it. I like the audience sound. It reminded me very specifically of being at the Keswick Theater right outside of Philadelphia. Probably yeah. around the... I think the Keswick's a little bigger. But, you know, it sounded like it was in a theater. And, you know, I appreciated that. Uh, in your best concert recordings, it always seems like the band and then they pipe in the applause. In this time, right. I enjoyed, especially because it was a document, I really enjoyed hearing the room. Personally. Yeah, the ambient noise there, it felt like your buddy sitting next to you with a tape recorder. You felt like yeah. you were sitting next to it. Um, right. And I like that as well. I think that Billy's songs lend themselves so well to these theaters. Before you got the bigger arrangements, louder players, having even a stripped down setup like this, it sounds quite good from an audience recording. Mm -hmm. You know, that's something that's Really cool to hear. When we do the Phil Ramone episode coming up, we're going to talk a little bit about what sort of goes into making a quote-unquote live recording. Yeah. And that's what I like about these is that, man, this was the live recording. These are the audience reactions because it's 1974. He's really only got one album people know about. Yep. And he's the opener for the opener. So, first, you know, first take... three on a bill. And if you're yeah. a musician out there, you know how rough that is. That slot is tough, man. <laughs> yeah. That's a, people really don't care at all about you. No. But, you know, already you can hear where people are responding to songs that they know. One or two things came up that I wanted to point out when I heard them happen which mm -hmm. I thought we were, were pretty significant. There's a great through line on the first half of this show that has to do with some technical difficulties, which if you were making a movie or you were writing a book or something, this is the kind of thing that you would see just keep happening and progress and get a little worse and a little worse. Right. Again, being that it's a bootleg, you know, there's no, there's no moving around this thing. It's in there because somebody recorded it in the audience or from the board or wherever. We'll track that as it goes. And I, and I looked up a little bit more information about that as well. But we'll oh, get good. into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioning the technical difficulties, that's something that's been well documented throughout his career. So <laughs> it's kind of funny to see how he handled it early on in his career. There's the Russian one that obviously that that was so well known and even blown out of proportion to some degree in the media. Yeah. And there's been other instances as well there, where there's been a you know a PA issue, a lighting issue. Yeah, it's a very human moment often yeah. when something happens off script, so to speak, and, and you, you're really reminded that you're watching live people, especially... Once you're in a stadium or a coliseum, you know, it's almost easy to forget you're in the same room as these people until something goes haywire. <laughs> right, exactly. These smaller, more intimate shows, there's less of that barrier between you and the audience. Yeah, and you hear a lot of that in his rapport with the audience, too, which is funny. Billy's always been one to speak with the audience a lot. But back in the theater days, he's so much more casual and there's some literal back and forth at times. All right, let's jump in. Yeah. We start with Travel and Prayer. Comes in a little hot. I appreciate yep. that. Reminds me a little of when we did the TV appearances episode and they started one with Travel and Prayer and it was the first one that we could find with Doug Stegmeyer. And mm. there seemed to be some excitement about it. And, you know, at the time you almost felt like it was because Doug was there. Right. And I think that's still true. But listening to this, you realize that what a great opener, I guess, Travel and Prayer was because you could come in hot on this one really easily. And it's one of those songs that if you don't get into it just right, it can become a train wreck. So yeah. beginning of the show, tends to be the jitters, the butterflies settling in, kind of mm -hmm. getting the feel for the night. Traveling Prayer is quite a choice to just jump right into something upbeat, quick-paced, and um, yeah. after the Street Life Serenade era, we really never saw it in this slot again. It seems like a song that's almost written to be played with butterflies because it's such a jittery train beat anyway. <laughs> you right. could sort of get away with it. Okay, so as far as personnel goes, let's just do this here like everything in, in 1974 it seems like things are a little fuzzy yeah but we are reasonably certain that it's reese clark on drums that he was the drummer at the time and then it's either al hertzberg or don evans on guitar and larry russell or patrick mcdonald on bass so with that in mind uh on the recording you can't hear the bass at all for my money and i'm i was listening on some nice headphones but there was just no bass response in this recording the bass drum was just laid bare you heard every right foot hit out of reese on this and the guitar would sort of come in and out right so with that in mind it seems to me that reese was a little erratic at the beginning of this 
his bass drum was just really hanging out there and I, I think a couple times it was a little off until he found his spot with it mm-hmm. he definitely settled into it but it seemed like he just couldn't find that downbeat right away yeah. on the bass drum one thing that that makes me think of as well because i've done a couple of shows where i was you know the first of three on a lineup kind of like this and mm-hmm. when you're the first band you've got the least amount of production you typically yeah. don't have any kind of road crew so you're throwing up your own gear in front of all the other gear so you You've got less real estate to work with on stage. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it can be a throw and go. You don't get a decent sound check. You don't get all of the bells and whistles that you get as you move up the success ladder of being in a band. There's a very good chance that this first song was the band still dialing it in on all fronts. You know, maybe the drums weren't quite right position wise and things weren't quite there yet. So it's them literally trying to get everything set during the first song. Oh, for sure. I mean, your ears just sometimes have to get used to what you're hearing out of the monitors. God knows what they were hearing. It takes you a little while to adjust. He might have thought he was on the one based on where he was. Right. And then somebody else is coming in and that, that becomes the three, becomes the backbeat or something. You know, the exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been there. But it was just a little something I noticed. And it was a shame because I bet you in the moment it sounded fine. That being said, let's, uh, let's just say that guitars come in real sweet on this one. He comes in a blazing, whoever this one was. Now, this is a song that, like the studio version of The Entertainer, this one relies a lot, arrangement-wise, on adding elements one by one. And that's Mm -hmm. what makes this song work. Otherwise, it's going to get pretty boring pretty quickly, to be honest with you. Well-written song, but there's not a lot going on. It's just verse after verse after verse. Um, And obviously, they didn't have a fiddle. They didn't have uh, a pedal steel. They didn't have a mouth harp. All of those elements really make for a dynamic studio recording. Yeah, without all those elements there, it certainly can run into a danger of being monotonous like that. You're right. Right. So a lot of this fell on the guitar player here. And he does a great job just coming in with some riffing that covers the fact that they didn't have three other elements to work with. The other thing they did was they really, on this song and a couple others, they really relied on dynamics. They really relied on the entire band going soft and then getting louder, things like that, to make the arrangement work without, you know, all the added overdubs and things that you can have in the studio. It's a shame the guitar was actually a little low on his solo. Again, you know, you can't tell if that was just the room bootleg or if it was you know the sound guy who didn't know the opener for the opener so well that he knew when to make the adjustment things like that that's another point to being the first of three was brian ruggles working with billy on this at the time i brian i know brian started early on but yeah you know i'm sure there's house guys working on the audio team who really one had no idea how these songs were and didn't care so they're just getting (laughs) getting a decent enough mix And I tell you what, for being the opener of the opener, it's still a great sounding recording. Yeah, for sure. And especially because we're getting it from the audience. So we know that this is what they were doing with it. There was no tweaking with it later. I like that they put a big dynamic drop towards the end. And it's just worth noting that they didn't do the coda. Once they stopped, they stopped. They didn't come back in. Which, that's the move to make when this is an opener. You get in, you get out. I think if it's later in the set, you would start doing the solos at the end. It's a nice way to introduce everyone. Mm -hmm. So that brings us into Somewhere Along the Line. But before we get into Somewhere Along the Line, the through line begins. Yes. (laughs) And he starts very passive aggressively. Uh, There's a problem with the pickup on the piano. And he says into the mic, the pickup is falling down on the strings. And in pure Billy Joel fashion, you hear him flourishing up and down the keys. And he says, it's okay, I just won't hit that note. You know, it's not an actual, it's cool, man. It's a, hey, I can't play the instrument. Somebody better come up and fix this. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's talk about this real quick. So here's what I found out about this. Because he mentions it by name later. It's the Countryman Pickup. Yep. And so this is a very specific microphone system that was designed to pick up an acoustic piano to be amplified. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's something you don't think about as much today because... You know, just everything has a plug-in now. If you've ever seen, like, I actually had an acoustic without a built-in pickup, and I had to buy the bridge pickup or the one that goes over the sound hole, rather. You know, I need to, like, kind of fiddle with it and put it in there. Yeah. So let's see what we found on this. Now, this was an interesting piece of technology that was pretty advanced for its day, but just never caught on. And Mm -hmm. perhaps we're seeing why. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So let's see what we found out about it. 
It was a pickup that, quote unquote, and this is from Wikipedia, uh, used the piano string itself as part of the circuit. So I didn't get too crazy into the technical aspect of this, but it was really just a sense of picking up, I guess, all the vibration that you would put it in the piano. They work similar to condenser mics, but not quite the same. The technology it looked like was originally came out of the Grateful Dead, who around this time were under the patronage of Owsley Stanley, who was behind the infamous wall of sound, which was like a huge wall of amplifiers, things like that. And they were really experimenting with different technology mm. for live shows. And so this sort of came out of that. Uh, the piano pickups, they said, made it possible to use uh, Steinway and Yamaha Grand Pianos on stage very easily, you know, for the Grateful Dead shows back then. Uh, yeah. Nicky Hopkins, who played with everybody, it seemed, in the late 60s, early 70s, definitely played with Jefferson Airplane, amongst yeah. a couple other people, and was on uh, some Neil Young tours. Yeah. You mentioned those artists. The big difference is those aren't piano-based artists. They're artists That's that a good use point. piano. Mm-hmm. So it's not as crucial to get a really true full piano sound yeah because it's one of so many elements and not the primary in all those artists now with billy it's all about the piano yeah and it really doesn't capture what he does well yeah that's a good point and you can't lose a note because the problem in this as we find out the problem here was that a microphone kept falling and hitting a string and then once it Touched the string on the piano. If you hit it, it was muted and it didn't quite work right. Right. Let's see, the Countryman also, and this is from a forum, Countryman also used bars over the piano strings, but instead of being magnetic, they became the backplate of an electrostatic system with the strings themselves being the diaphragm of something like a condenser microphone. Can't quite picture this, but I will say this. If you're interested, at least right now, you can purchase a Countryman pickup on Reverb.com owned by Dan Fogelberg. For just $299, dollars <laughs> Oh, that's funny. You know, if I yeah. had a grand piano, I'd almost want to get one just to mess with it. Yeah, yeah. So it just put this big thing over the strings, and instead of just picking them up, it sort of like made the strings part of the system. Don't yeah. ask me how. And then I had a control box that sat on top of the piano, and this guy says it was tweaky to set up, subject to RF interference, and required a power supply. But when it worked, it sounded incredible. Apparently, yeah. this night was not working. <laughs> it was not one of those nights, yeah. <laughs> yeah. This was really fun to just peek into for a second. Just like this offhanded comment in an obscure bootleg just yeah. opens up this whole new world of like, right. you almost feel bad like talking trash on him now. Like, hey, guy came up with something. It was a good idea. It just didn't quite pan out, you know? Right, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. he was hating it. Oh, he, he was not happy about it. I, you get the feeling that he he must have known about it. He must have like had other... I'm, because I'm sure they were using these all over the place at the time. Like, oh my God, the Grateful Dead uses it. Nicky Hopkins uses it. You know? Yeah, he knew exactly what it was. Right. He probably saw it when he walked in and went, shit, oh, here damn. we go. That's my guess. Yeah, yeah you're right. right. Because you weren't bringing your, he wasn't bringing his own piano. I mean, you were subject to whatever was in the room, I'm sure. Yeah. Probably you're using, you're using the house. Yeah. It was probably yeah. in the rider. You know, they provided one and stuff right. like that where they'll rent one for the night if one's needed. And I'm sure yeah. that's what it was. Anyways, <laughs> right after traveling prayer and before somewhere along the line, get some nice uh, crowd interaction going. Yeah. I just picked up on, he says, and, uh, and, uh, and that's sort of his way of getting through things, which is idiomatic, I guess. Yeah. That's his stall, which we do, yeah. but we cut it out. <laughs> This is where he mentions it's his first time playing in Boston. Oh, right. Yeah. You take it for granted. You feel like he's played in Boston forever. So to actually hear him say this is my first time here is Mm kind of crazy to me. They just happen to document this one where he says it, too. And he mentions seafood. He mentions the Bruins, the Celtics, the Red Sox, <laughs> yeah. the, easy, the easy audience connections, you know, the local <laughs> teams and all that stuff. And he mentions it was his first time playing Boston, but is not his first time playing Massachusetts. Right. He played Western Massachusetts somewhere. And then he mentions yeah. that it didn't go well. <laughs> yeah. But somebody says, I saw you there. <laughs> right. I think that's later on. Yeah. It's such a small, intimate room that he can hear that and interact directly with somebody in the crowd. Yeah. And, and even in, I think that happens later, but in this part, when he's calling out the sports teams, they're kind of yelling it to him and he's saying it back, you know? Right. Which is fun. Okay, so somewhere along the line, decent version. You know, once again, unfortunately, it's not the fire brand that was CW Post, but my big things on this was I missed the organ on it, but yeah. I like that they put some slide guitar on the breakdown. This song for me, I guess it depends on my mood. I'm either hot or cold about it. 
Yeah. Some some days I'm like, oh, this is great. I love it. Some days I could mm-hmm. do without it. Hmm. I'm the opposite. I could take this one anytime. <laughs> As I was listening to it, though, I wrote down, is this the prototypical early 70s Billy Joel song? Does this encapsulate where his writing was at in the early 70s? You know, that's a good point because it's got that little bit of a Western feel that he definitely had on Piano Man and Street Life Serenade. It's a little singer-songwritery. But it's that Billy Joel way of dealing with, it's not my place to say dealing with depression, but it's been noted as sort of like one of those kind of songs. Mm-hmm. And it's got that real shrug it off kind of attitude. So yeah, I think that really encapsulates the, the point where he always broke from singer-songwriter and had a little bit of his own voice. This might be the one that really encapsulates Billy sort Joel. of the frame of mind, yeah, between Piano Man and Street Life Serenade. The way he does the riffing in between the lines and the verses he did a lot back then if i were to tell someone this was where billy joel was at in 1973 74 to me that's the song yeah for sure and as we're talking about it i'll go ahead i'll take it one step further and i'll say that this is either the precursor or the companion piece to summer highland falls okay you know similar subject matter doesn't sound the same stylistically but sort of in the same spirit yeah i can see that i can see Mm -hmm. that not wallowing in feeling a little down but just sort of exploring it coming Mm -hmm. to terms with it that sort of thing i like that that makes me enjoy this one a little more anyway but those those slides on the breakdown they sound really nice and i'm going to mention this a little later there's something about that really distinct and very conscious arrangement choice and i think it just has to do with people playing the same note but in a different octave it sounds orchestral to me and it gives it a deep sound without sounding like jazzy and harmonized just very full and very sonorous and this was sort of the first example of it to me on this show and it's notable because it seems to be just four people on stage yeah and in recreating album tracks that do have some more elements in them these are nice arrangement choices to key into and enjoy that's a great point doing octaves when the band is tight it can be very effective right it's a really nice way, like you said, to fill out the sound. And Billy has done that on and off throughout the years. Uh, yeah. I was listening to Glass Houses not too long ago. The piano solo to Don't Ask Me Why, he's doing octaves for the whole solo. And mm. it just gives it a nice little oomph. But you don't even realize he's doing the octaves, really. Yeah, that, I, I never even thought of it on that one. But yeah, it's just a little more full. So now we've got what is referred to in bootleg land as the technical difficulty blues. <laughs> <laughs> The saga of the countryman pickup continues. Well, he starts playing that one key again, and now he's just hitting it like a dentist drill, and they're still yeah. not getting the point. And they break into yeah, right. What's what's noted on the on the bootleg as technical difficulty blues. They just start playing a blues, and he's just singing about the piano not working. <laughs> Passing of aggressive and so funny. Yeah. Has he done this before or was the band just that good that they all jumped right into it? Kudos to the band for falling right into it. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like a few licks on the piano and then Reese Clark just jumps right in and then whatever the the guitar player just played like a perfect kind of stormy Monday Mm -hmm. sounding uh, blues thing over it. (laughs) Yeah. And it makes for quite an interesting segue into Piano Man. Here's a good point where I'm saying it's notable that this he's the opener for the opener and this is an audience recording because they start cheering before anything happens and you realize he's putting on the harmonica. Yeah. So not only did they know Piano Man, but they knew Piano Man was coming because he was putting on his uh, headgear there. And this is largely an audience that hadn't really seen him live. So Right. And he had never played Boston. You know, there was a couple of people like we had learned who had seen him Western Massachusetts and other spots, but mm-hmm. this was a new market for him. And they knew what was coming, which kind of foreshadows what it's been like ever since, really. Yeah. 
And this is, and it's funny too, because it's it's so early on in his career that Piano Man is number three on the list. And here with it being early in the set, this is kind of where it stayed well into the 80s before yeah. it became the closer or right around the encore. It's mm-hmm. three songs in here and it, it stayed that way for quite a while. You know, and now that we're talking about that, the more we do these podcasts, the more you realize that Billy Joel's history has been, it seems to have been carefully curated in some ways. And I think we've touched on this a little. You know, we all know the Lords, but you know, if you look a little closer to the liner notes, you see when different people were in and out of the studio, things like that. <laughs> And of course, by the time I would say you and I came online, Piano Man was known as the closer, right? Yeah. I, did you, like in your lifetime, did you ever have a recollection of Billy not closing a show with no, Piano Man? No, because you know, the first time I saw him live was Stormfront Tour, and it was, that was, right. yeah. More recently, it started becoming the last song before the encore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it, you're right. It was, it was right there at the end. Right. And it seems to me not quite a retcon, but it sort of is in that sense that somebody decided this is the big Billy Joel song. It's not Captain Jack. It's not scenes from an Italian restaurant, which is kind of odd. It's Piano Man. And they decided that that becomes the signature. And that's what closes the show. show. Because clearly he wasn't doing that the entire time. Back then, Piano Man was a blip. That was an aberration almost. That was like his first hop. You know, right uh, now it's seen as the cornerstone song. You know, it's his nickname. It's this and that. Speaking to that point, Piano Man was the only song where a new music video was cut way down the road. Years later. Yeah. And that speaks to how it just snowballed into becoming what it has. The video we all know for Piano Man was filmed in 1985, 12 years after the album came out. And that makes me wonder, I bet you, if we look into it, if we check out the set list, I bet you that's around the time it became the closer. So back to this version, however, we've seen a few different versions of this on various live recordings. CW Post, again, you know, they really screwed with it in ways that I at least enjoyed a lot. We saw a couple different versions of it uh, on uh, television appearances. Mm-hmm. Um, where and obviously now he's able to keep them pretty close to the uh, to the originals. This one is sort of in the middle. Definitely keeps the spirit of the original, but definitely does not have as much going on. In it. I think that has to do with the players. Oh yeah, because this was the lineup around when that record was cut. Yeah, so it's pretty spare most of the time. Mm-hmm. Drums are on brushes. There's pretty much nothing but guitar, bass, and drums. For a lot of it, once we get into the bill, I believe this is killing me. They come in with some nice uh, sort of classical guitar. Yep. This is a great example of them really using dynamics because the album version has mandolin, has some accordion on it, all these different things. And since they don't have them on this stage, they do a lot with coming in soft and getting louder and getting soft again. It's really the singer-songwriter version of this one. Last thing is the audience was really quiet for this one. You know, I thought so, no too. no background noise, yeah. Yeah, they were really tuned into it. Yeah, that's the best way to put it. They were very much tuned in. They weren't, you didn't get the feeling they were bored or just like sitting there twiddling their thumbs. There was just no chatter. Like if there's no, no. chatter, that means people are paying attention. <laughs> right, exactly. I noticed too that here we are, 1974, and Billy's already improvising the piano solo. That's true. That's, I didn't even think of that. And I noticed and so, at the end of Piano Man, crowd goes crazy. Right? They do, that's right. Yeah. Huge response at the end of it. Certainly the biggest of the night. Speaking of response, we now get to the peak <laughs> of our of our technical difficulty saga. <laughs> yeah. Now he's really got what I've referred to as his Al Pacino voice. And every once in a while he gets that early Al Pacino kind of nasally thing going on and he's getting it going now and he's really pissed off about this pickup because I've been at the bottom of the barrel of this for a long time and I'm not going to take it anymore <laughs> to rapturous applause I know yeah <laughs> and then he says I'd like to play a piano that sounds like a piano which is just a great distillation of whatever he was thinking or feeling at the time he's telling the crew to take it off it almost sounds like he asked for it not to be there when he sat down yeah so this was going on for a while the way I heard it was during soundcheck or when he sat down at the piano before the show, he saw it was there mm-hmm. and he made mention of not wanting it. That was the impression I got. He knew it was there. He already told him to take it off or he didn't like it. Yeah. And this is where he says, don't ever buy a countryman pickup. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Calls it out by name, you know. Um, can, you, can you fix this, please? I asked that this thing wasn't on here when I sat down to play uh, the Countryman pickup. And, uh, 
I've been at the bottom of the barrel with this for a long time, and I'm not going to take it anymore. This is the part where the crew is finally coming over to deal with it because Billy has to vamp for a bit and he decides to vamp with Scott Joplin's The Entertainer. Again, a smart move because it gives him some banter to segue into his entertainer. Right. You wonder if he was doing that at the time anyway, and this was just fortuitous timing, or if that was something he just took advantage of uh, in this moment. Well, according to what he says, the song was actually only written just a couple weeks prior, so this was brand new out of the gate. But Scott Joplin's The Entertainer was happening right at the moment. Yeah, when did this thing come out? Oh, that was 73. Right, because it was used in the well, yeah. The the entertainer was used in the in the Sting, which came out the year before. But I mean that, yeah. Even though obviously he just wrote the his entertainer, I'm sort of wondering if he was as a piano player screwing around with that every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. The song I just played is a thing called the Entertainer, uh, which is a record out now. I wrote a song a couple of weeks ago called the Entertainer. But, uh, I like the title of it. I'm not going to change the title. I don't care about that. So, uh, I'm gonna wait till that other song dies down, and then I'm gonna play that minor. So, so, I know uh, you've never heard this before, you've probably never heard a lot of this before. Yeah. See if you can hear the words when they sing, because they should get me in a lot of trouble. We touched on this on the Street Left Serenade episode, but I gave it a much closer listen this time. It's definitely embryonic, and the way you can tell it's embryonic is that the band sort of changes the feel of it a couple times during it, and not in places that sound as if they did it on purpose. It really sounded like they were like struggling to find the right groove for it, and it would sort of change the groove at different times and hope that was the one sort of thing. It just feels like it's not set in stone. They're just trying to see, throw paint against the wall and see what sticks. Exactly, yeah. But they get a real nice, big orchestrated feel on those stops. And that sort of speaks to what I was talking about on Somewhere Along the Line, where I don't know if it's octaves or what it is, but they they make it sound really rich and really big. Um, So they do like a kind of a cut time thing at the end. So instead of boom, tack, boom, you know, boom, pop, pop, pop kind of thing. Of all the versions we've heard of this one, nobody uh, kind of Johnny Rotten that up, which would, seems like it was the, the thing to do with it. <laughs> right. This was really where I started keying into the fact that he had the West Coast band and especially the West Coast guitarist. Because once they cut-timed it, I was like, man, this could have been a Grateful Dead jazz. It was faster, but it had that loping feel to it. A lot of nice kind of like light ride cymbal stuff. Another thing I noticed with the song, in the part that became the Moog part, He's playing it on piano, obviously, at the time. He's not playing with the Moog off to the side, Mini Moog. Mm -hmm. And that part is quite different. So this brings us to Billy the Kid. And judging from the audience reaction, they really knew this one, too, which surprised me. Yeah, that surprised me. Right out of the gate, as soon as there were some recognizable notes, audience response immediately. But this also speaks to the point that when I lived in Brooklyn and when I lived uh, now live in Philadelphia, and obviously the suburbs, which picked up the same radio stations, we heard Billy the Kid on the radio, but you were out in the Midwest, you did not. No, that was never a song that got radio airplay where I lived. 
the, right. the 70s songs we heard were really Piano Man, and that was mm-hmm. really it until The Stranger. And then it was off to the races there. But yeah, n- none of those other cuts from Piano Man and Street Life, we really got Radio Airplay out where we lived in Michigan. Yeah, that's funny. Here's what's funny about this one. First of all, they had a nice groove on it, certainly very different from the Lords. They, uh, they screwed this one up pretty badly. <laughs> all of them, Billy included. Yeah, I was trying to pinpoint where, how it went wrong, but it did. Couple missed cues. Then Billy starts not slurring words as if he's drunk, but he's just like kind of vocalizing. You know, he's not making real words anymore. And then at right. one point he just screws up a line completely and you hear him laugh about it. Yeah. And then there's a stop. Silence. Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> And you wonder if like they were putting different things in, and one of them forgot that it was his turn, you know? Or, yeah. Or, that was kind of funny. And then, and then out of nowhere, he goes from a town known as Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and you're like, you're in Massachusetts, and you don't follow it up with anything. Yeah, same syllables: Boston, Massachusetts, Pittsburgh, Boston. Pennsylvania. <laughs> right. Would have worked. Yeah. Does nine songs. Three of these songs end up on songs in the attic. And this one especially feels like sort of the embryonic version of the songs in the attic. I like the slide guitar on the intro. I thought that worked really well. This is another one where you really hear this specific band's groove on it. And Mm -hmm. this is one of those ones where you also hear why Billy didn't want guitar because it almost becomes a guitar song because the guitar is just kind of chugging along and it's doing its thing. And it sounds like a West Coast song. Sounds like it could be off a Jefferson Airplane album almost or a Dead album because of the way that the guitar starts to take the lead in driving the rhythm. Yeah. But you miss out on the stops. It's not that muscle that comes from just sort of the Billy way of arranging it and the yeah. Lord's way of pounding it out. That's right. where you lose it. Yeah. And that was something that the Lord's did so well. Yeah. Yeah. Especially so with well. you know, Liberty's pounding it out and, and oh, Doug yeah. being in sync with them and hitting it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I like this one. I wouldn't go back and like choose to listen to this Billy the Kid, but it's a great document in that you hear this really different groove that you don't hear on even any Billy albums. Mm-hmm. And also because they screw up all over the place. And that's just fun. After Ballad of Billy the Kid, we're going into Worse Comes to Worse. And he describes it as an L.A. version of reggae, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. So... I put the, he also calls it mongolized reggae. I'm going to get really granular now. First he says mongolized, mongolized reggae. Then he says LA reggae. Which speaks so much to what we talked about in Street Life Serenade, where he's just seeing everything in LA is fake. And so it's LA reggae equals fake reggae. And right. then they play a beat where I'm going to venture to say that if he didn't call it reggae, you would never call it reggae. Even on CW Post, where they do it there, and we kind of commented about how they skittered around the downbeat for a minute, which yeah. now, in retrospect, speaks so much to it being reggae, because reggae's uh, drops on the, the one and the three, and very yeah. specifically the three, where you expect it on the two and the four. So, I then declare Worst Comes to Worst, part one of three, when it comes to Billy's relationship with reggae. Yeah. This will yeah. be the first one. I put All You Want to Do is Dance as number two. Yep. Yep. And then Absolutely. Only the Good Die Young, which got changed. So those right. Are, um, okay. All right. Wait, 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 wait. Do we put Running on Ice as number four? Yes, by way of the police. Thank you. Yeah, that's just what I was thinking. Yeah, because, yeah, especially Liv so was doing a real... It was Billy's thing. take on the police's version of reggae. Right. So part one of four, then. I kind of want to put them all together and listen to them and see how it evolved. What's your take on Worst Comes to Worst? Because this is another one. And I wrote down that I, I always thought this one was underrated. I'm with you there. I think the only thing that really bugs me about the song is the intro. I don't like the oh, way yeah. it gets into it. I don't love that, but when the song kind of gets in, I think it's a great song. This is a weird version of the song because they really do lean into that reggae thing. He's rolling his R's all over the place. (laughs) Yeah. Billy thing he likes to do later. Here's something you rarely, rarely hear on uh, Billy Joel record, let alone, I would say, live albums from this time. Vocal harmony. Yeah. Yeah. I had that highlighted and underlined here for sure. I was like, who sang these harmonies? They sounded really nice. Yeah, I know. No, not a bad not a bad way at all. I thought they were no. great. In the later 70s and into the 80s, obviously there was a lot of harmonies going on with Billy's stuff, but you had largely Russell and Doug singing the harmonies who blended so well with Billy and even sounded a lot like Billy in ways. Yeah. But this background vocalist who was doing the harmonies here had his own character for sure. I'll call that another West Coast artifact, you know? 
them yeah. different people harmonize. The one thing I would have loved to hear on this, though, because the Mangalized Reggae thing kind of worked, kind of didn't. Once he got into the Money Ain't Easy verse, I wanted to hear them just shift into a regular backbeat. And then the ending was really interesting, sounded like it was going to fall off, and then ended, like, real tight. Notably. It, it was strange. It was a little jarring for me. I yeah. thought it was going to fall apart, too, but it, it hung on. Definitely a different ending than I anticipated. Yeah, because once he had the Lords, when they used to do this one, he used to, like, whiz around on the Moog for a minute, and then they would just, like, stop on a dime. After Worst Comes to Worst, we've got the sole representation of Cold Spring Harbor. Now, this is well, well before Songs in the Attic, so the only way anyone knows this song at all is Cold Spring mm -hmm. Harbor. And it's funny because he says... Says, I'm going to re-record this on my next album. Next album. And then he backs up and says, Billy Joel's greatest hits. I'm going to do a song from uh, an album I had out in 72. Right. The one that made me star I am today. Um, uh, this will be on uh, my next album. This song. I'm going to re-record it for uh, Billy Joel's greatest hits. No, no. What's funny is, of course, the big difference between the original Everybody Loves You Now and the Attic version is the focus shifts from piano to guitar. Yeah. And we see that happening a little here. The guitar is starting to come up. Uh, it feels like they didn't really have a piece of this one, and I'll attribute that to this is sort of the metamorphosis happening between the original studio version yeah. and uh, the songs, uh, the Attic version. I noted here that the second bridge has some nice power to it. They yeah. seem to catch their stride about halfway through the song. Mm -hmm. Sort of throwing down a little you find out that i guess this is one of the ones that really needed the lords on it really needed that east coast yeah. slap around you know you couldn't dead your way through this one you know <laughs> yeah liberty did something totally different with it with the drums gave it a yeah. completely different feel especially the attic version the twin acoustic guitars david brown uh, and russell that tight rhythm playing together gave that song such a powerful drive and back to live for a moment this is a great example of how he played off the lyrics because he would do those fills you know really obviously based on whatever line billy had sung mm -hmm. and that really cuts through this version, the intro is specifically uh, when he is introducing the song. Mm -hmm. He says, we're going to do a song from an album we had out in 72. And he's already getting the years wrong. So that leads us into Captain Jack. This is where he also talks about playing Western Massachusetts. And mm -hmm. uh, man, it must have been nice at that point in his career that people were calling out that they saw him wherever he was talking about. Yeah. That people were responding to that, which is pretty, that's, that's got to be a nice boost. You know, when you're the opener for the opener, people are like, I saw you, man. That was cool. You know? <laughs> yeah. I saw you playing Ann Arbor, man. That was so fun. Yeah. 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 Actually, I guess second of three intros for this song. It's yep. not quite Piano Man. It's certainly not the uh, attic version of it. Or CW Post. Or CW. That's right. Okay, so that's four. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, you see him already really building up. You know, you can almost see a lot of this stuff is leading into songs in the attic, so to speak. Mm. Interesting version of it, I guess. Once yep. again, like Billy the Kid, it has more of that groove on it, thanks to the guitar player, but not the muscle that we would come to appreciate later on. Yeah. He dedicates um, this song to suburbia. Yeah. And then he does a funny thing where he says, toy doy jeans. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which, which we're going to say is like the precursor to like Blink-182. Like that sort of yes. oi, yeah. SoCal thing, you know. <laughs> yep. He also Super. says something different. I couldn't quite catch it. He says something, so something from your hair down to your toes. He definitely says a different word there, but I can't make it out. I, yeah, I couldn't decipher what he was saying either. Yeah. The ending of this was very similar to Attic. A lot of these songs faded out on the record. And when you're doing a live show, you got to figure out how you're going to end these songs. 
some of them are terrible. Some of them are really special for these live versions. Mm -hmm. Captain Jack is one of those that has, to me, a great ending. And yeah. by 74, he had it already pretty well formed. And this ending carried on through the 80s. Reese gets a little funky on this one. And, you know, as a drummer, man, this one gets a little boring back there on the verses because there's just so many verses and it's rife for uh, screwing around a little back there. You know, especially if you get the bass player on board with you, <laughs> you know, yeah. you'll, uh, you'll, you'll change the feel up just a little back there. They do some more nice dynamic work here, really dropping the volume, stuff like that. Really nice guitar build on this one. Some extra guitar flourishes. Mm -hmm. This was another one that was a great example of Really nice guitar work that sounded like everybody else's really nice guitar work. And I don't say that dismissively at all. Um, you could tell that Billy at some point made a shift and that shift really gave him his distinct sound that would really start hitting on turnstiles and go from there. Yeah. And I think a lot of it was saying, no, I want my guitarist to stay out of my way. Like, I don't want yeah. him on top of the piano. Yeah, it was finding the right guys who yeah. knew where to sit. So this is... The end of the initial set, he says, thank you, goodnight. Yeah. This seems mysterious to me. Right, right? When does the opener for the opener get an encore? That's exactly what I wrote. <laughs> I kid you not. See, Jack and I don't compare notes. We pick the topic, do our own research, and then let this unfold organically. Yeah. It's so funny you mention it, though, because I say here, interesting that an opener gets an encore. Almost <laughs> never happens. Yeah. So, but hey, man, they got it. And, uh, you know. You really realize here that it was a Leon Russell cop. I like this song, but, uh, you know, and, and Billy talks about that, too. You know, kind of compares himself to Elton and Leon. Or yeah. pointedly does not, but clearly he was doing a Leon Russell here. And, of course, we're talking Ain't No Crime. Oh, yeah, yeah. We found that one interview where he was showing how he played differently from Leon Russell and Elton John. When he plays yeah. like Leon Russell, he sounds like he's doing Ain't No Crime. crime. <laughs> yep, bingo. Uh, a lot of bluesy guitar on this one. What I like about this as the choice for this encore is it's a nice powerful song yeah but it's short and sweet mm -hmm. so go back up hit them with a nice little rocking tune that's not too long and then boom you're out i wonder if he kind of he figured it out in the sense that he knew how much time he had and he he padded it in Right, yeah, he made it so like he he stopped a few minutes early and then picked it back up again. Now the whole recording is just under forty nine minutes long. Mm -hmm. You do notice that there were a few clips in the tape. It sounds like they stopped the tape a couple times and pulled it back up. Yeah, but I don't think we lost any songs in there. Probably just cut out some dead time, even though they left some in there. For being an opener, one of three, this is actually a pretty long set. Yeah, I mean you figure it's easily a fifty minute set. Uh, you know, from walk on time to walk off. I mean, I've done opening slots where I've gotten like 25 minutes. I was about to say, yeah, you do the 20-minute you know? slot, 25. Yeah. yeah. Ain't No Crime works great as a closer. Even when we did CW Post, it was, what did you say, the first of, of three encores that he did for that show? Yeah, so in the first encore at CW Post, it was the second song of the first encore. Oh, okay, yeah. It still sits as a closing kind of thing, you know. Right. Um, yeah, and, you know. Strategically placed near the end of the set. Exactly, exactly. Just like Traveling Prayer is uh, strategically placed towards the front there. Although with CW Post, it was midway through. And, and, and remember that? We were saying, man, there's a lot of noodling on yes. that version of Traveling Prayer. And there it is a little later in the set. Yep. You know, now that I'm looking at this and we mentioned that Everybody Loves You Now is the sole uh, track from Cold Spring Harbor, this is pretty much Piano Man Live with the exception of uh, Stopping Nevada. Oh, yeah, and The Entertainer. So what's missing off Piano Man is Stopping Nevada and... If I only had the words to tell you. And if I only had the... Yeah, and if I only had the words. So this is uh, almost a whole live album. Now, it's so well documented, the debacle of Cold Spring Harbor and what all happened with it. Mm -hmm. I'm curious as to why he dropped all but one song off the live show. Yeah, when you listen to that old Northampton, Pennsylvania bootleg that came out a few years ago, and it was an audience recording of Billy's first theater show up in Central Pennsylvania, uh, what happened with that one, which was funny, is that that audience just happened to know Cold Spring Harbor really well. Like, it just got a lot of airplay. 
He wasn't expecting that. He played She's Got Away because the band he had just put together didn't know those songs. So he went with that one solo. Yeah, so it's almost funny that he doesn't put She's Got Away in here. Although, he doesn't really do any ballads this time around, except for Piano Man, which was the hit. Yeah. Everything else is pretty up-tempo. He doesn't bring the excitement level down anywhere here. He keeps it pretty high yeah. up the whole time. Which is a smart choice as an opener. Yeah. You know, you don't have a lot of leeway with your set. You're not playing as long as if it was your own show. And right. you really want to try and keep their attention and keep the energy up, especially if it's an audience that's not very familiar with you. You know, going through Cold Spring Harbor in my head now, I'm kind of surprised that you can make me free didn't get more play back in the day. That seems like tailor-made for rocking out a theater or even a uh, yeah. stadium, although it wasn't there yet. And the original version had that huge coda with all that jamming on it. So yeah. it had some and it, play. It sits, it fits really well with the Piano Man material. I think it would have worked really well live back then. Here's my conjecture then for the day. You Can Make Me Free, was it just too close to a Paul McCartney thing that he didn't want to represent himself with it? Possible. I mean, I never heard it until somebody pointed it out. I, it's a great song. I always liked it. Even I remember even when I was a kid and I got the cassette. You know, when I first heard Cold Spring Harbor, not knowing any of the history, just knowing I had to pick up a Billy Joel album and being enticed by the fact that I didn't know any of the songs on it, really. I was very <laughs> excited to hear it and was really turned off on it because I couldn't get into ballads when I was a kid. Right. But you Can Make Me Free just always popped to me. Yeah. Of course, knowing that he was making the album in an attempt to sell his songs. You know, it makes me think that he try to distance himself from something that maybe sounded more like an impression i guess you know everybody loves you now and then later she's got away with the ones he felt like were really him off that album yeah that's a good point so it ain't no crime the show ends so does end the bootleg and so ends one of the very very few glimpses we have into billy joel in 1974 very undocumented year like we said you know street life comes out of course but uh pretty spare on bootlegs there's no demos to be heard and uh right. you know it's not until he starts ramping up for turnstiles that we can really find a lot to work with so this is uh it's not the one you're going to put on a lot and enjoy yeah. but it's the one you're going to listen to for a nice little history lesson and a nice little glimpse into a star that doesn't even know he's on the rise yet <laughs> yeah, and that's what I like about the moment here on this show yeah. is he is still young. Career could go either way at that point still. Mm -hmm. you know, Street Life hadn't even been out yet. Most of the yeah. record hadn't even been written. And so he was out there as an opener having to prove himself in front of these audiences and really, really grind it out live. It's just so fun to hear him at that stage. So give this one a listen. Get back to us. Let us know what you think about it. We love reading all your comments, your emails. Uh, and it's fun to get those different perspectives on all these records, especially the bootlegs, to see what people remember about maybe seeing them back then or what this concert sounded like even just a few years after that or even just a year or two after that. Yeah, please reach out to us. If any of you saw Billy in 1974 we'd love to hear your memories you can reach us at glasshousespodcast at gmail.com we read and respond to everything and who knows we may even read it on the show and you can also find us on social media facebook twitter instagram just search for glasshouses billy joel and you'll find us and uh we always love connecting with you all and it's it's a real treat to uh, chat with you guys and until then don't ever buy a countryman pickup that's right get this thing <laughs> off we'll see you soon Everybody loves